Okay, so hello everyone. Um, welcome to the National University of Singapore's Middle East Institute's Salon Series. The Salon Series is where we run events in a more casual and relaxed setting aimed at showcasing a different side of the Middle East and its culture. Uh, so we're joined today by Mr. Sharif Damish, a London-based curator and publisher. Uh, we'll look at the life, works, and legacy of the late renowned Libyan satirist Hassan Demish, or Al Satur as he was better known. Al Satur was a, was a satirist in exile in the UK. When the Gaddafi regime fell in 2011, he had already been criticizing the regime for decades through his work. Um, but even after Gaddafi left the scene, Al Satur continued pushing for political and social change up until his passing in 2016. So you can't really talk about contemporary Libyan culture and history without considering Al Satu's work, I think. And to go through his eclectic body of work is to take a journey through Libya's modern history, its transition from autocracy to liberation and um, unfortunately now civil war. Uh, we're very fortunate to be joined today by Sharif, uh, Al Satu's son, who will be our guide as we discover more about Al Satur and his legacy and hopefully along the way, glean new insights into Libya's modern history. Uh, Sharif will speak first, and then we can do Q&A. So um, over to you, Sharif. Okay, thank you very much. That was a lovely introduction. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, so hello, everybody. Uh, as uh, as you heard, I'm, I'm Sharif. I'm uh, the you know, the artist, the subject of this discussion is some. Um, I'm, I'm 32 years old. Um, I hope you can all see that. Um, the beginning of the presentation. Um, yeah, I'm basically I'm I'm from the north of England, where I was born and raised um, in a in a small town called Burnley in in Lancashire. And for for any of the uh, you people who've spent any time in the UK, you can probably tell I've got quite a, a strong uh, northern accent. So I, I hope that's uh, that works okay. Um, so yeah, that's that's I'm from an area quite close to Manchester and. Um, yeah, that's that's where my father um, came when he came to the UK, and that's where he settled. So I'm hoping to take you on a little journey through my father's life, um, his works, um, the importance of his work, and um, yeah, it's it's a real shame that I wasn't able to present this from what would have been the opening day of the exhibition here in London, but obviously due to COVID restrictions. Uh, that has been pushed back to later this year uh, and instead we're doing a series of nationwide exhibitions and who knows uh, it would be an absolute pleasure to bring something like this to Singapore further down the line uh, so yeah um, so here we go I think uh, my dad's story is one that deserves to be heard and celebrated not just by uh, Libyan people um, or people you know in the in, in the local area where he where he lived and worked as a as a graphics teacher in the north of England, but for anybody who can really understand, uh, you know, and relate to the struggle against a higher power, um, and anyone who appreciates art too, because uh, he was a fantastic artist as well as a satirist. So I'm very thankful today to have the opportunity to talk to you guys uh, about this. Uh, so yeah, that's a, a big respect to the to the MEI and uh, US for giving me the opportunity. So as you'll realize, uh, today actually marks 10 years since the beginning of the Libyan revolution or thereabouts, the February 17th revolution. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a time of extraordinary 
change and you know there was a huge feeling of optimism among the among the Libyan community uh, and you know all across the the Arab world really uh, for for people who were hoping for change and um, yeah you know social media played a huge part in that and that was something that my we'll see that my father took a big advantage of uh, during those years from 2011 onwards uh, so, I mean, around this time, 10 years ago, I, I certainly remember what I was doing. Um, I'd actually moved to Daegu in South Korea and I was teaching English there. And at the time I was in contact with my father every day uh, from he was in the UK teaching at the time. And, you know, he was telling me that, you know, building up to the February the 17th, he would tell me that, you know, Libyans were sort of preparing for a day of rage on February the 17th, a day to express anger at the Gaddafi regime that had ruled the country for almost 42 years. So to provide a little bit of context to the story for those who might not be as familiar with Libya's um, history, I'm just going to give a very condensed brief uh, history of the country um, I'm not a historian, but I hope this kind of works if you get a, a crash course on, on Libyan history. Um, so here's a map of Libya, as you can see, wedged between Egypt and Algeria and Tunisia to the northwest there uh, in, in North Africa, of course. Um, and it's split into three vast regions, as you can see. You have sorry, Tripoli. Sorry, is your, is your slide uh, on the page? Uh, we're not seeing uh, on, on the map. No, we're not seeing the your slides. Oh, is it not? Uh, oh, I'm very sorry. Here we go. Sorry about that, everyone. All right. All right. Uh, you. Can you see now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the slide when I was initially talking, then this was the initial slide, which uh, is actually the poster for the exhibition that we're we're moving forward with. So I do apologise. You didn't miss too much. Don't worry. And um, the next slide was uh, this one when I was talking about the Libyan Revolution. And here we go. Uh, this is where the the map, as you can see, the three vast regions of Libya. We have Tripolitania to the west. Fezan to the south and Saranaka to the east. And um, my father, he was born and raised in Benghazi, which sits on the north, uh, the north uh, coast of the, on the Mediterranean in Saranaka. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, as you can see, a uh, on, the, on the opposite side in Tripolitania, that's where the modern day capital Tripoli is. Um, so Libya is actually is one of the... Um, it's one of the largest countries in the world in terms of land mass. It's uh, the 17th largest, but it's one of the least uh, densely populated countries on earth. Um, so, you know, to put that in perspective, uh, Singapore has 8,000 people per square kilometer uh, and Libya has an average of around four. So, you know, uh, obviously, as you can see, it is mainly along the coast where uh, people uh, live in Tripoli, in, in Tripoli and other cities dotted along the coast, including Benghazi or further over in the east. Um, so for thousands of years, Libya has been sought after territory by colonizers. Uh, you know, it's, it's right in the north of Africa. It faces uh, Europe. It's, um, it's a very strategic geopolitical location. And 
1613, as you can see here, these beautiful ruins, uh, the ancient Greeks colonized Eastern Libya and founded Cyrene, uh, which is one of the best preserved sites of ruins outside of Greece. And, you know, after you know, over the next 2000 years, uh, Libya was occupied and invaded by the Phoenicians, the Persians, Romans, numerous Islamic dynasties and the Ottoman Empire too. Uh, then in uh, 1911, uh, Italy invaded Libya uh, and, you know, uh, there was war on the, the Turkish Ottomans who were, who were ruling at the time. Uh, and on November the 1st of that year, the Italians dropped four bombs on two Turkish-held bases in Libya, uh, carrying out the world's first airstrike as part of the Italo-Turkish War. So the Italians uh, overcame the Ottomans with relative ease as the empire was on the brink of collapse after hundreds of years of power. Um, as Italy's fascist regime tightened its grip on Libya, a resistance was formed in Saranaica. Uh, so this is, if you remember, the east of Libya. Uh, it was led by a gentleman called Omar Mukhtar, who some of you may have heard of. Uh, he was known as the lion, known as the lion of the desert, and he remains a Libyan national icon of resistance and a hero to many still to this day. Um, due to his army's knowledge of the area, uh, you know, which uh, is quite mountainous, uh, they were able to fend off the Italians uh, for quite some time. Uh, right up until his capture and execution in 1931. Uh, and during World War II, uh, Eastern Libya became a key, key battle site between the Allied and Axis forces. Um, famously, the Battle of Tobruk took place there, and also uh, Roald Dahl was actually shot down in Libya in the war. Um, so, yeah, after, after World War II, in 1952, King Idris was put on the throne and the country was ruled from the east of Libya, Benghazi and Tobruk to be specific, uh, whereas in the past central power was always in the capital Tripoli. So Libya finally had its independence after thousands of years of colonial rule. And then, so that was my crash course in Libyan history, which probably was far too quickly to go over 2000 years of history, but there you go. Uh, and anyway, from here, Enter my father, 1955, Hassan Mahmoud Demish. On the left picture, you can see him pulling a little bit of a John Wayne pose. Uh, on, the, yeah, on the left, his father's in the middle. Uh, and there he is on the right picture in the middle. Uh, and my grandfather on the left-hand side. Um, so, yeah, he was born and raised in, in Benghazi. And at the time, the city had been quite damaged in the war, but it was, uh, you know, it was being uh, developed and modernized uh, and was showing a lot of signs of prosperity. Uh, my grandfather, Sheikh Mahmoud Demish, uh, he was the actually King Idris's um, imam and religious advisor. He was a very powerful figure in eastern Libya. Uh, right up until his death in 2009 at the, at the age of 97. Uh, he was a very religious man. Uh, he played a vital role in social reconstruction in Benghazi. Um, and, you know, he assured the Libyan people a better quality of life during this period. So this man is where my father inherited his spirit of rebellion. Uh, he was you know, not afraid to speak the truth uh, and express solidarity with the weaker parts of society. Um, so here is a short 
video, which I hope will play. Um, if it doesn't, that's totally fine. I can show you, I can send you all the link after. Um, but this was just a collection of, uh, of images that my father drew, um, which sort of reflect on the digital sketches, which you can tell from this murky picture here, uh, which is obviously the beginning of the video. Um, it's, it's basically a collection of sketches of Libya from uh, pre-Gaddafi years. And uh, you, you get a sense of sort of the culture from there. A lot of them are taken from old photographs. I do apologize, that was gonna be about a 45 second, uh, let's call it an artistic interlude but it can wait and I'll pass over the link afterwards and share it with you all. Um, so yeah, my, my grandfather, he, he was a big supporter of, uh, of my dad's artistic side. Um, and, you know, he, he, uh, they bonded over a lot of the satire at the time, which these two images are from. This is a gentleman called Mohammed Zawawi who, uh, you know, he was, a, he was a satirist for many years in Libya, known as the father of Libyan satire. Uh, for any of you who are interested in sort of going back, you know, there's huge archives available online for you to, for you to flick through. Uh, I think Iran Cartoons is one website worth looking at. Um, so, yeah, my, my grandfather sort of introduced my dad uh, into satire, taught him to be politically aware, um, and also, my grandfather was a bit of an artist too. Um, my dad used to tell me about, they used to go onto the rooftop in Benghazi where they had a pen of pigeons and my grandfather would draw the pigeons on the, on the slates of the roof. And uh, I think my dad always wanted to be able to replicate that style of art, but it just, that wasn't the way he, he, he operated. Um, so yeah, Mr. Zawawi, who, whose images we're looking at here, he, he documented Libyan life and as you can see, more Pan-African Af Pan Af uh, Pan uh, illustrations for, for many years. And he passed away in, in 2011. So my, my father actually started drawing mischievous cartoons uh, of teachers on the chalkboard. That was my, that is the impression that I got uh, of when he first started uh, drawing to entertain other people. Um, and I wish I had, you know, some snapshots to show you of those chalkboard drawings. But instead, I'll read this very short description by one of my father's good friends, Ahmed, uh, who recounted this to me not too long ago. We had French lessons at high school. Our teacher was an Algerian gentleman who looked like a cartoon character, a thin mustache and prominent features. During the break of the class, Hassan would get up and draw the teacher on the chalkboard. When the teacher would come back into the room, he'd look at the picture, rub everything off the board, but leave the cartoon there, which I think, you know, you get the idea that uh, even the teacher saw the funny side. So that was, that was where, it, where it all started for my dad. And then, so not too long uh, into my father's life, I think just at the age, just before his 14th birthday, entered this man, uh, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. And this was 1969 in, in September. And things changed overnight in Libya. Uh, his bloodless coup saw power returned to Tripoli. Uh, King Idris was dethroned and exiled to Morocco. Um, my dad didn't trust Gaddafi, even in the early days as, you know, as a 13-year-old child. And, and even when, I guess, uh, across uh, the region, there may, there may have still been an air of uh, pan-Arab optimism 
so I'd just like to read you a short extract from an interview in 2014 with my dad, which I think really captures how he felt about Gaddafi um, as a young person. When the military coup happened, my life turned upside down. In 1969, despite my young age, I didn't see any point in the coup. I loved King Idris. The country was safe, safe despite the spread of poverty at the time, but there was hope for an improvement in living conditions as there were developments in all fields. The voice of Gaddafi and his accent was strange, which raised my doubts about him at the time. And when I saw him smiling, my suspicions increased. His wicked eyes were full of hatred and backwardness. As a child, I did not feel any affection towards him. I started to follow his speeches. and My mother, may God have mercy on her, was telling me when she, see, when she saw me listening to his speeches, what do you expect to hear from him? My response was that I was waiting for the time that he would reveal his real personality, that I always felt that he was hiding it from us and it didn't take too long until the mask fell off. So uh, I remember my dad recounting to me about uh, he started drawing illustrations of Gaddafi around the same time. Um, and, you know, he would he would just share them with his friends. Um, the earliest one that I have is is. Uh, here's one from 1980, uh, which stylistically is, you know, worlds apart from the things he was producing 30 years later. But I, 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 I find it quite hilarious. Uh, as you can see, the colonel's hiding in the jack-in-a-box, um, which I guess at the time sort of reflected the the, the invasion of privacy uh, on people. And, you know, there was a lot of paranoia uh, around that time, around the 1980s among Libyan people, because nobody knew who... Um, who was a spy and uh, and so on. So anyway, just to rewind a few years back into the 1970s, um, it didn't take long for, for young Libyan people to start leaving the country um, in hope of, of something, uh, I don't know if you want to say better, but something different overseas. Uh, what, some were leaving for opportunities uh, in work and, and studies, uh, whereas others may have started to flee for political reasons. Um, my father's case, uh, he left, here he is as a young man, uh, there he is in Libya, there he is in the UK, uh, a few years later, um, looking a little bit uh, older, I'd say, a little bit more rugged, probably the, the British weather's done that to his fine Mediterranean complexion, but um, in, in 1975, he, he left Libya and he came to England, not really knowing for how long. Uh, he was 19 at the time and uh, full of the desire to live his life as a young free man. Uh, he loved music, perhaps more than anything, uh, reggae music, funk music, folk music, um, which, you know, it, it became uh, prevalent subjects in his artworks later on, uh, which is, you know, aside from uh, very different from his satire. Uh, and I, I'll show you a few examples of that uh, short, in a short while. Um, at this time, my father wasn't proactively involved in any political movements, uh, nor did it really interest him at the time. You know, like a lot of people when they're 19, 20 years old, um, we have other priorities, you know, and, and, and a large priority at that time for him was having fun in the UK. Uh, he was living in a, a city in the north of England called Bradford. Um, here he is uh, in the summertime in, 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 in Bradford. 
in West, this is in, in a place called West Yorkshire, uh, and it's an area that many migrants fled to in the 1950s and from onwards, mainly from Pakistan, as this is where uh, industry still existed. My dad stayed there for a while uh, with, you know, here he is uh, in his youth. Um, he stuck around there for a while, but soon left and headed to a town called Burnley over the county border in Lancashire, which is where he settled. Um, Burnley is, is uh, now is one of the most depra deprived places in the UK. Um, and it's not somewhere people usually flock to. Uh, maybe around the 50s and 60s, it was uh, for the same reasons in Bradford, where there was industry. But uh, my father ended up there quite randomly because he, he enrolled on an English course because it was his only way of staying in the UK and away from Libya. Uh, so he'd gone from Benghazi to Burnley, which in a way is, is, is a journey stranger than fiction. Uh, but he, it was here that he met my mother, Karen, uh, in 1977, and they soon fell in love. Um, and he'd been on the run for a, a couple of years. So he was, he was in the country illegally uh, and he was avoiding deportation. Uh, for a while, uh, because he knew that he would have been arrested in, in Libya, and he didn't know what would happen. This was a time when young people uh, were being hanged, in, uh, you know, there were public executions. Um, it was a dangerous time, and he he knew that it wasn't an option to go back to Libya. Um, so yeah, they they were married, and. Uh, he was calling Burnley in England his home uh, at the age of, I think, 23. Uh, so a year later, in 1980, uh, he was in London and he spotted a Libyan opposition uh, magazine uh, on a newsstand in, outside Earl's Court Station in West London. And he bought it and he wrote to them and explained he wanted to contribute some cartoons. Uh, and he sent them some samples. Um, Obviously, they snapped his hand off at the offer, and uh, soon he began publishing his cartoons under the alias Omran. So it wasn't Satur to begin with. Um, here are a couple of very early cartoons that I've managed to get my hand on. Uh, I must I, I must point out that I'm I'm still very much undertaking research on finding old magazines from the 80s, in particular that that contain my father's work. And uh, yeah, I have a stack of them next to me here. And, you know, it's, it's something that I'm gathering and collecting and trying to, uh, trying to, trying to uh, sort of uh, archive everything correctly. Uh, so from very early on, as you can see from these cartoons, he, he started to give uh, Gaddafi certain traits. Uh, one of them was bones, um, you know, and you can often see reflections of nooses. Um, people being hanged, which was, you know, something that was happening at the time, especially young, uh, young people and dissidents. Um, he often drew flies uh, around him. Uh, he, he always had a little sort of rat following him around, which I guess maybe symbolizes uh, the sort of the cronyism uh, around, around the Gaddafi at the time. So, yeah, he was publishing for magazines like Jihad, uh, which, uh, and yeah, there was uh, several other publications which had small circulations among uh, young uh, Libyan people uh, living in the UK, in the US. Um, and that was about it, really. I've, I've heard stories of some being smuggled into Libya via suitcases. Um, but yeah, if you just bear with me. So 
my dad was able to sort of operate quite covertly in in Burnley. Um, he didn't really mingle with um, with other Libyan people. You know, it, as I mentioned, there was a lot of paranoia at the time in in the nineteen eighties among Libyan people. Um, you know, there were opposition oppositional movements forming in the UK. Um, against Gaddafi, but my dad never became officially affiliated with any of, any of them. Instead, he sort of operated as an autonomous voice. Um, he continued to criticize the regime uh, that was crushing dissidents inside and outside uh, the country, uh, and was also supporting terrorist groups across the world. Um, this was a time of Gaddafi's reign of terror, green terror as it, as it was known. Um, it was estimated at the time, I mean, you know, they can never be too accurate with these figures, but it was somewhere between 10 to 20% of Libyans were spies reporting back to the regime. Um, that's a proportion of informants. Now, the, this is a fact I've got from online, of course, but um, it's, a, it's a proportion of informants on par with Saddam Hussein's Iraq or Kim Jong-il's North Korea. So, you know, surveillance was taking place inside the government in factories in, in in the education sector and overseas too. So real, realistically, it's um, it's no wonder that my father was sort of, you know, he was operating in a town where there were no other Libyans for miles around. Uh, he was 50 kilometers away from Manchester, uh, which is actually a city where there was a growing Libyan community, but he, he kept his distance from people and he had a small circle of trust of people that he would interact with regularly uh, in terms of uh, other Libyans. Um, and, you know, this, this also meant that he had limited contact with his family back in Libya. Um, yeah, had to be very careful with things like that, even though, um, you know, he, it wasn't known that he was, uh, he was part, uh, producing these cartoons, but he living outside the country would always stir, uh, paranoia so yeah um in around this time in 1984 uh here's some other cartoons of Gaddafi as you can see uh, and there's particularly the one in the left of people um hanging there um there was a very famous case in 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 1984 of a student uh, called Sadiq Hamid uh, Shawedi he was um yeah a student and an aeronautical engineer who was executed following a short trial in a basketball stadium in Benghazi. And uh, my father actually played for the basketball team uh, in the previous decade. Uh, and this was a trial that was broadcasted live on Libyan state television. Horrific uh, event, what took place. Um, and it obviously became an international um, concern because people were starting to really see the 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 extent of the terror that was going on inside Libya. Um, and that same year, uh, my father, uh, it was actually a couple of months previously, the execution took place in June. And in April that year, there was a very famous case, uh, a murder that took place in, in the UK. Uh, and my father was actually there at, at there was a protest. Uh, here are some screenshots from a video, which, you know, the, the, there's plenty of footage out there for anyone who, who is interested. And it's, it tends to be called the Yvonne Fletcher case. In the top left, uh, you can see a group of protesters who are the pro-Gaddafi uh, protesters. This is taking place outside of the Libyan embassy on St. James Square in London, April 1984. 
Um, and they were the pro Gaddafi protesters. At the bottom, uh, the bottom left and 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 the right uh, with with the balaclavas were the anti Gaddafi uh, protesters, as you as you'll tell from the signs. Uh, and my father was among them that day. Uh, he didn't really go to too many protests, but he was at this one. Uh, and and what followed was uh, a shooting from inside the Libyan embassy out onto the anti-Gaddafi protesters. And uh, several people were shot and injured and one uh, British police officer was was killed and nobody was ever held uh, accountable for, for, this, for this murder. It's, uh, it's, it's a very bizarre case. Which you know, if if you if you're kind of interested in in Gaddafi, I think the 1980s is is a is a very interesting period to look at because um, his sort of his tentacles were was sort of wrapped around so many uh, so many organisations across the world, terrorist organisations, and involved in some horrendous crimes around the world, which uh, no one was ever brought to justice for really. Uh, between 1980 and 1987. Amnesty International reported 25 assassinations of stray dogs uh, by the dictator's international death squads. Um, and here's a short quote from the colonel himself. It is a Libyan people's responsibility to liquidate the scum who are distorting Libya's image abroad, Gaddafi warned dissidents. Um, so, yeah, as you can tell, the nature of my dad's work, he was clearly doing just that. And, you know, um, and if anything, I think hearing these things, it, it helps sort of spur him on. Uh, and shortly afterwards, this is 1989, uh, this is Al-Satur. This is when Al-Satur was really born. Um, and he started his own small publications. I mean, you're talking four pages of just cartoons, little, little bits of political commentary here and there, kind of all cut out and stuck together with the help of my mum and and, and photocopied and you know sent off to people um, but that was sort of how my dad uh, you know got started with that here's a, a cute picture of uh, myself uh, aged uh, probably around one years old uh, reading the magazine uh, and uh, you know clearly having a great time there but uh, my dad once said that um, I knew that cartoons were a powerful tool but they had a stronger impact than I had ever imagined. So for him, it was, you know, his work was sort of, um, was having a having a large impact on the people that were, were taking in what he was saying. Um, so the next decade or so, I don't want to fast track through my, my dad's life, but of course time is of the essence. Um, and in the 1990s, satire came second to education and artistic exploration for my dad. Um, this is where he sort of revolutionized his approach to uh, satire in a way and art more broadly. Uh, and he started with him taking a computer course in, in 1990 and soon discovering new ways to make art. You know, he, he was sort of unshackling himself from the caricature. Uh, just a very short quote from uh, around that, uh, from him talking about that time. I was in a classroom in front of an Amiga computer. Everyone was typing while I just stared at the screen, not understanding what I was required to do. I found a program with the brush and colors, so I started to draw. So this was how my dad got introduced to digital art. And, you know, he, he soon took his, uh, his A-levels uh, and then he did a degree at Bradford University. And then in 1995, uh, after he graduated, he became a teacher. He started teaching graphics at the local college 
for uh, people 16 to 18 years old. Um, so as you can see, uh, anyone familiar with sort of street art or, you know, the, there's a lot of influence from artists like Keith Herring here, who, who really, uh, you know, enjoyed his work. Um, so yeah, this sort of artistic exploration of my dad was something that he carried through right until, uh, you know, until he passed away. It was a huge passion of his, but, um, I won't go too far down that path. Um, and now, you know, I want to keep things sort of Libya focused here. Um, so at the turn of the millennium, uh, obviously, you know, the internet was becoming way more accessible for people. Um, and it was a pivotal change that would make my dad's work globally accessible. Uh, so here are some very early uh, digital cartoons from, uh, yeah, I've, I've said that. I think these are from 2001. Um, and yeah, the, my dad was starting to get uh, his, his cartoons published on a couple of small Libyan websites uh, after he'd been invited to, to submit some cartoons in 1999. Now, as far as I can tell from the archives, um, from 1999, he was publishing a handful of cartoons every year because he was busy with other things in life. You know, he'd gone the 90s uh, when he was, you know, sort of late 30s, 40 years old was a time when he he went through education. So he did that, you know, let's say 20 years later than a lot of us will go to university. Not always, but that's usually the case. Uh, and just to give you a sort of scope of of the of how prolific my dad was in the years from 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 around 2000 onwards um, i've just completed a project of archiving his cartoons um, that he independently published so this doesn't include things that he did for television stations later on um, but uh, we, i'm up to around 7,000 images um, between 2000 and um, 2016 so as we move uh, move along, he became much more prolific uh, in his artwork, and um, I'll be launching that archive in April this year, and I'll be sure to share it with the uh, Middle East Institute, and and hopefully they'll pass it pass details on to anyone who's who's interested. Um, so yeah, uh, after the teaching day was finished, my father, you know, he he he'd come home and he would glue himself to his desk. He'd have television uh, on that was uh, picking up Arabic news website uh, news stations through you know we had like three satellites on the side of our house it looked quite ridiculous but uh, that was a way that he got gotten got access to these channels and he started to take uh, screenshots and, and manipulate them uh, you know and as you can see from early on uh, when the certain traits that he gave to Gaddafi um, he he was still, he continued to do that where he drew sort of Mickey Mouse ears, I guess, on his hat. Uh, he'd often draw him as a dog. Um, you know, he'd pick on his, his sons as well. Uh, I mean, you can see his daughter there. He often drew high heels on, on Gaddafi. Uh, he often drew him drooling like this. Uh, so they quite like, you know, they're, they're relentless, I'd say. And they, you know, it's, it's not, it's not what you'd call subtle satire. It was it was sort of a vicious attack, but that was that was my dad's approach. He was quite aggressive and very sort of he tackled issues head on. He he wanted to produce uh, an effect quickly, and he wanted to offend the people that who were his 
his targets. That was his aim. Um, so yeah, as I, as I mentioned, you know, um, having access to 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 news websites and to a computer and the internet completely changed everything. Um, here's a very short quote from my dad uh, talking about the early early days of his sort of um, his digital production. It was an effective method in my fight against Gaddafi. I would get complaints from Libyan authorities on my YouTube channel around 2006, but it never stopped me. I was constantly being targeted as I never set myself limits. People would complain that Al-Satur had exceeded the limits of morality and they demanded I deleted my insulting cartoons of, the, of Gaddafi and his family, but they were to no avail. So around this period, I mean, uh, I'm just showing you some uh, sample cartoons here, of course. Um, um, and yeah, here he is again as a dog. But um, during the 2000s, my family, we were, we were sort of harassed uh, online via, well, yeah, this would have been around 2007, 2008. Uh, we were harassed on, on Facebook uh, by having our accounts hacked. We had email hackings. Um, threats were sent directly to me and my sisters. Um, but none of this really dissuaded or, or frightened my father. Uh, if anything, it sort of spurred him on. Uh, and just to provide a tiny bit of context, you know, my father, um, me and my sisters were very, how can you say, I, I guess, very disconnected from our, um, our Libyan identity because we didn't grow up in a community with Libyan people. Uh, we, were, we were sort of, um, I'm going to say westernized in it. You know, we were, we were, we were British and we, you know, that's, that's it. Our friends were British. We didn't really have much knowledge on uh, Libyan heritage um, for obvious reasons because we weren't able to travel there. Uh, communication between our Libyan family was difficult because we didn't learn Arabic growing up, which is uh, obviously, you know, a, a, a real shame, but, um, you know, I've, I've managed to teach myself just the very basics and, and that's something I continue to do. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it, was a, it was a difficult time for my dad also because he was so disconnected from his own uh, Libyan heritage in a way because he wasn't able to go back and in um, some of you may remember that in, in 2003 um, Libya sort of rebranded itself as the new Libya and they reopened it, their doors to uh, to western nations after years of sort of having you know a, a shutter down um, and sort of hopes of the regime's collapse seemed more distant than ever uh, it was emerging that MI6 and the CIA were exchanging details on dissidents uh, for extraordinary renditions with Libya. Um, and there were, you know, the famous photos of Tony Blair, uh, the, the former British PM, shaking hands with Gaddafi. They were very bleak images uh, for people like my father to see because, you know, it, it sort of shattered, the, it felt like it was shattering the work that, that him and other uh, voices were trying to achieve. Uh, but needless to say, um, you know, my father's work continued to gain popularity. And just like at the end of the 1980s, he was now able to uh, publish his work completely independently on his own blog, um, which was just a simple WordPress website, uh, which is still available for people to scroll through. It's, it's almost like a scrapbook, but it, I think it serves as an important, uh, 
a historical document uh, to look at certain years of uh, of Libyan history of politics uh, you know it's it's very very interesting uh, but again I'm, I, I'm I'm in the process of archiving uh, a lot of this work um so yeah so it, it, once again he he had his sort of independence back uh, with his work and like he did in the late 80s where he didn't have any editorial control uh, any editorial uh, restrictions let's say he could publish whatever he wanted and a lot of these images that he would publish uh, himself would have been images that would have been uh, rejected from 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 other publications that he was associated with earlier on because because they were so relentless and offensive. Um, it was a tough time for my dad around the late two thousands. He was uh, he suffered from depression, uh, and he often had sort of long dark bouts with depression um, where he kind of shut himself off from the world, uh, including ourselves a little bit. Um, and he lost his father in 2009 uh, and he'd lost his mother in, in the mid nineties. So he hadn't seen them uh, since he was 19 years old, since he left Libya, you know, which gives you uh, an idea of how, how difficult it must've been for him because he felt very disconnected from his family, which he was. Um, he'd been away for 34 years. So he'd spent far longer in the UK than he had in, in, in Libya. And there wasn't any at that time around, you know, 2009, 2010, even early 2010, there was no real sign of change anytime soon. Uh, as you can see here on the, the, the left image, uh, Saif uh, Gaddafi, he, and he's also depicted there as a sort of Mr. Potato Head character on the right. Um, he, he was uh, Gaddafi's son and he seemed like he was the heir um, and the next in line and sort of uh, less of a megalomaniac on the surface than his father. And, um, you know, there was there was a period of time where it looked like, you know, power would exchange over to uh, to safe and maybe, you know, the, the Gaddafi dynasty would have long continued had it not been for 10 years ago. Um, so yeah, here are a couple of other cartoons. I mean, I don't want to flood you with uh, you know these uh, these images, but it just gives you a sense of the sort of the aesthetics through the ages of how things were changing uh, for my father and his work. And um, but I, I thought again, we'll have a little artistic interlude here. But this time, it's just images. Um, and it just, it just, I just wanted to touch on this because it gives you, a, it gives you an idea of what my father was doing away from the satire. Um, so, you know, his art took a very different shape uh, on, on the canvas. Um, and it's, again, it's a side of my father's work that I'm still exploring. Um, I'm exhibiting around the UK, hopefully later this year. Uh, I've done a couple of exhibitions previously. Um, and you'll be able to look at lots of images on the forthcoming website in April too. And a lot of my dad's subjects were often based around uh, Afro-American culture. Uh, he once said, I love jazz because of its melody and the conditions from which it appeared. I identified with the history of black people in America based on my own suffering and persecution. So yeah, the, these are just a couple of examples here. And, um, you know, there's a lot to delve into here, I think, in terms of like my dad's uh, 
suffering as 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 a, as a, as a human in exile and and how that was depicted through his artwork. But you know, as as well as that, not to sound, uh, I don't I, I don't want the the subjects of his art to be too cynical. I, I also think that it would the, the colors he uses uh, and the fact that every a lot of things are, are surrounded around music. Uh, are also an expression of his own colorfulness and vibrancy you know um, he, this really comes out on the canvas um, and it's very different to sort of the you know the the, the viciousness you you get of Sator the relentlessness of his satire and how he um, how he sort of attacked his who he saw as his opponents so yeah again you know who knows one day we'll maybe bring uh, exhibitions like this to to Asia and explore it further uh, anyway, we'll go back to uh, to Libya. Now we're sort of into the final phase of my my father's life. We'll kick off with sort of the in 2011. So these cartoons you're seeing on the screen now, on on the right there, it says Allah Akbar, Ya Trablus, which you know is Tripoli. So it's basically urging on the people of Tripoli uh, to chase Gaddafi out. Um, you can you start to see the colours appear of the the Libya the Libyan flag from when they had their independence in, from 1952 to 1969 the green the black um, the red something Gaddafi got rid of straight away and uh, if you remember the the Libyan flag was just a green uh, green flag um, so yeah you know those, those colours start to become prominent in my dad's work uh, around this time and. Yeah, his blog was completely flooded with posts and information. Uh, he was also sharing information with with people. Um, you, sorry, he was sharing information for people at the time. And uh, I remember he was, um, you know, he was getting thousands of views a day, which was which was big, you know, then for for something uh, for in taking place in in Libya. Um, so here are a couple of other cartoons and um, shortly after this so it would have been April 2011 he actually got recruited by a television station called Libya Hra TV based in Doha in Qatar and he's, he, he moved over there and started working for them uh, this didn't stop him producing work independently but he also you know he, he, he produced work for them on their station too uh, he was very hesitant to leave his teaching job and his wife behind uh, you know, but he knew this was his calling. He had the chance to join like-minded Libyans and have his work broadcasted. Um, like many uh, other, other people involved in the channel, he worked around the clock to deliver pro-revolutionary news. Uh, and yeah, around that time, he was producing probably 1,500 cartoons uh, a year, which is a hell of a lot, really. Um, so... Yeah, it was only around this time that people actually found out who my dad was. You know, they, they start, uh, he wasn't really scared to hide behind the pseudonym anymore. He didn't really need to hide his identity. So these are just a couple of pictures, you know, from the last few years of his life. There he is uh, at the coast in Doha, and there he is at his desk in England. Um, so, and yeah. Uh, Let's have a look here. So in October 2011, if you remember, Gaddafi's when Gaddafi was killed and captured. Uh, and that's when my dad sort of pledged to stop drawing Gaddafi. And then he moved on to other subjects. So here I'll just show you a couple of cartoons where, you know, he started to pick on other uh, sort of political players who were who were entering the, the, 
the political sphere in Libya. Um, so now it was sort of these people became these targets from, from all different angles. As you can see on the right, you have Obama, Sarkozy and uh, David Cameron. Um, this gentleman in the middle, Bel Hajj, was he still is sort of involved in, in Libyan politics, politics, more on the Islamist side of things. Uh, so nobody really got away with anything uh, under my dad's uh, watchful eye. And, uh, you know, he, yeah, things, he's, as you can see, the aesthetics completely changed in his cartoons here. Um, and he always, one thing he did, here are some uh, journalists and lawyers and human rights activists who, who were assassinated uh, over the, the years succeeding the revolution. Um, and what my dad would always do, he would, he would always tribute the people who, who lost their lives in, you know, in, in fighting for Libya's freedom. Uh, and this is something he'd done for years and years. Here are some earlier cartoons he did uh, that are sort of based around a huge massacre in, in Libya that took place in 1996 uh, in the Abu Salim prison, where it's an estimated 1,270 prisoners were all gunned down uh, at once. Um, an ongoing investigation from Amnesty International. Uh, and actually, uh, you know, it, you know, to show, uh, my, I think the, the last cartoon my father ever published was actually of uh, a, a, a Jordanian pilot who had died in the, in the civil war. Um, so yeah, those, that was sort of a recurring theme in, in the, in the works that he produced. And just to wrap things up, um, I thought I'd give you my own take on the last few years of, of my dad's life. Um, you know, during his final years, I, I think his artistic flair, um, his painting was sort of subsumed by the Libya's po uh, poisonous political landscape, I'd say. Um, but then again, you know, on the flip side, it could also be considered as Al Satur's golden era. Libyans were able to freely discuss, um, you know, their views across social media. Uh, it allowed his work to become more interactive and relevant. Uh, he corresponded with people online and he surrounded himself with people he, he respected and trusted. Uh, and, you know, he, he sort of, um, after, after he left Qatar, he went to Amman and worked for another TV station, 218 TV, which is still, still around, I believe. Uh, and that's where he sadly fell ill uh, while working there and had to return to the UK. And he passed away on the 12th of August 2016 at the age of 60. So he was still very young. Um, and yeah, my dad never really chose to integrate with the Libyan diaspora. And this wasn't because he wasn't sociable or he felt he didn't belong there. But it was because he was more of an anomaly, a deviant, an eccentric Um he was the buzzing fly Gaddafi failed to squat, uh, swat, sorry. And with the advent of social media, uh, he arose laughter, hatred, and controversy among his followers. My dad's ambition was always to promote education, creativity, and individuality among young people who followed his work. And I, I, I believe he fulfilled that. Uh, first and foremost, he was a teacher. He was a black sheep, but in all the right ways. And for anyone who spent time with him became enlightened somehow, whether in their knowledge of art, music, football, Libya. Um, and yeah, and I, I truly believe that Satur became a bit of a burden to my father um, because all he really wanted to do was paint under the blue skies of the Mediterranean and the gray clouds of Lancashire. 
but his selflessness and zeal for a free Libya was stronger than his desire to pain. And just to finish, I thought I'd share this, this image of uh, his, his studio back home. Um, and because I think, you know, when, when I think of my dad, I, I don't think of him, uh, you know, sort of uh, drawing Gaddafi and all this, even though that he did that a lot. But I think when he was really in his sort of in his own, he was here painting into the night, listening to music from people like Thelonious Monk. And um, yeah, that's that's basically my presentation, people. And I, I really hope that I've sort of given you, I haven't flooded you with too much information, um, but I wanted to just uh, tell you a little bit about my father. Uh, there's a forthcoming book, which I'll share information about uh, down the line when it's coming out in, in around, I think around five months time. So yeah, thank you very much.